When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. So one of the things that I saw, two things that I saw this week, Meghan Markle on Oprah. Okay. <laughs> and uh, there's this guitar guy that I love. His name is Matteo Sassato. He is, in my opinion, maybe the best guitarist alive. Wow. Yeah. He is so good. He's a social media phenom. And he recently posted, because I've been trying to learn his songs. They're so hard. There's techniques that I've never seen anyone else do. And I'm sure someone else has. But like, he is expertly using weird techniques to make sounds that I'm not familiar with. Okay. And he stopped posting for several weeks. He said that he hasn't picked up the guitar in three weeks because social media has just sucked the joy out of it for him. And he doesn't want to do it anymore. Wow. Not forever, but for a period of time. But social media is how he makes his living. Uh, I I think this guy can just pick up a guitar and go anywhere and make a living. Oh, okay. Like he is, I think even, I wouldn't consider you someone who like loves technical guitar playing. I think even you would love listening to him. Got it. So he can do concerts. He doesn't need yeah. to do sponsorships. <laughs> he can go wherever he wants. Got it. But I didn't realize when I read that there's actually two things that I've been thinking would make me happier. One is being an excellent musician and being able to express myself mm. the way that he can. A cla- no one who's good at music has ever been depressed. Yeah, and then I was a just classic. Like, oh, crap. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, not that not that music doesn't bring joy to his life, but I've been feeling not bad, but just sort of the realization that nothing will ever make me happy. Not that I'm not that and I, what I would say is like I'm good, I'm cool, but Every goal that I could imagine, and I already include the ones that I've checked off, like owning my time, mm-hmm. getting to do work that is meaningful and not just drudgery, all very cool, all have contributed, and all what they really have done is remove stress from my life, mm-hmm. which, is, which is not to be diminished. But every time I sort of subconsciously have a new goal, I don't even recognize that it's a goal. I see somewhere out there in the world that it doesn't work for lasting happiness and I'm just left like bereft and completely demotivated, which isn't a bad thing. I just wind up taking walks and playing League of Legends with you and talking nonsense and and, uh, perhaps, you know, calling my family a bit more. Well, they've I mean, they've done uh, we've talked about this. They've they've done pretty good research in the fact that one of the things that just determines your happiness is your happiness set point. Yeah. So 
your musician with a good happiness set point, you're going to be happy. Yeah. Your musician with a bad happiness set point, you're not going to be happy. Mm-hmm. And then the other stuff that you can control, yeah, it, it just tends to not be the highest levels of achievement. And no one has said that social media is good yeah. <laughs> for happiness. But yeah, I mean, and we talked about it on the podcast before, there's there's relationships with other people, removing stressors, getting uh, into an environment where you're with nature. You know, I mean, there's mm-hmm. there's these consistent things that can, I guess, quote unquote, make you happy. There's also, I don't really know how to square this because I feel like both of these are somewhat true. Happiness is a choice in the sense that it's not the external world that makes you happy. And we've seen that with going to Brazil and seeing favela kids who have no money mm-hmm. playing soccer on concrete barefoot and super happy. But also happiness is genetically predisposed set point. Mm-hmm. And so I don't really know how to square those except in my own life, I go, well, I can't affect my genetics. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to try to do the choice thing to the best that I can. But also recognize people that are dealing with depression aren't just making the choice to be depressed. They might have really bad brain chemistry, which I think is something that people who are lucky enough not to deal with that. Like, I, I never had depression. It's easy to just go, oh, everyone's like me. Everyone's wired like me. And when they're sad, they're just doing the Tony Robbins mental stuff wrong. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, <laughs> actually, they might have just gotten a bad hand. And what they're doing is the absolute best that they can, given their set point. Yeah, so that's yeah. where I fall. That's kind of a long-winded that's where i've fallen on happiness because i've tried to study it a lot because i find it very very interesting but yeah it's just not it's not like this one size fits all thing where everybody gets to be the happiest person on the planet sure well i think in terms of decisions because you can in the moment go you know what i'm going to look at the bright side and i think that's valuable but the things that i have done that have contributed to my happiness in the external world seem to be decisions about the environment in which i will be in Mm -hmm. so you can make a decision to go to a workplace where you're berated by your boss uh, because you need the money and that's likely to to screw you <laughs> over the long term. And you can just do one that's like anywhere but here and that's going to have a different thing. So I guess that's yeah. just the third piece is, is environment seems to weigh very heavily on people. That's what I was going to say. So, so the hedonic adaptation is a thing, which is to say you quit your job to move to Brazil to live on the beach and drink coconuts in a hammock. You're going to be ecstatic for a month. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, the ecstasy will wear off and it'll just be another day in a hammock with a coconut. But I do think that if you look at my life now, years into entrepreneurship, all the hedonic adaptation has occurred and you compare it to investment banking. When I didn't find what I was doing rewarding, I had bosses that were harsh. You know what I mean? I, mm-hmm. I think that you would see daily happiness is up just because there isn't that stress, that sleep deprivation, that sense that, oh, what I'm doing is not contributing to anything I'm proud of. Mm -hmm. So I do think there's, it feels like the day-to-day is just the day-to-day because it is. But I think if you could grab Charlie from the past or Ben from the past and put them side by side, you would would notice a difference from the outside of that younger one who's doing something they don't like Mm -hmm. and sleeping under their desk. You're like, oh yeah, that guy's not, (laughs) his day-to-day happiness is not as good. Even if 10 years later, I don't necessarily remember the difference. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Sure. The other thing that I'm sort of realizing today is if you if you grabbed me at a random time when we lived in Brazil, I think on any given day, you'd probably find me more effusively happy than I am these days. Mm-hmm. But it's also what I've realized is that was that what that was built on a belief that I was building towards something amazing. And it was it was the thrill happiness. It mm-hmm. was excitement happiness. And uh, then I got it. And there was a 
depression on the other side of it. Like I wasn't, I wasn't horrible, but there was a disappointment that I felt when everything wasn't totally different after I got everything I want. So that excitement, I guess this is the roller coaster that all the Buddhists talk about is like, look, if you go up, you will come down when you realize that you didn't actually go up in the first place. You mm -hmm. just thought that you were going up. So that's kind of how I've felt. And I realized I've had these ideas in my mind when I can play this song or exp express myself in this way musically, or if we can get Dungeons and Dragons to work as a professional business thing, that would be so cool. And what I realize is like guitar is going to make me exactly as happy as it makes me when I'm playing rhythm guitar by myself. Mm -hmm. And Dungeons and Dragons is going to be as fun as it is with no one watching. And those are either good enough <laughs> to continue doing yeah, yeah. or not. But I, my, yeah, the, the goal orientation for me, this is a fantastic place to be in, but it's just, it's interesting. I, uh, goals are, are, it's not what I'm, not what I'm, motivated towards these days <laughs> well yeah and that's i think actually the the thing is um feeling like you're on like you're progressing towards a goal that's important to you is actually a much more exciting day-to-day -day and a much more joyous day-to-day -day than having achieved a big goal and being on the other side of it mm -hmm. and that's why you often see people sell a business or achieve a big goal and then become depressed because it was mm -hmm. it's fun to chase it you think it's going to create some permanent shift in mm -hmm. your personality or your state or your life and then it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And that's the sad part. But actually not having achieved it yet and being on the path and feeling like you're growing towards it. That's that's the best feeling. Yeah. And some people say, like, look, just grow forever. Just just constantly yeah, just be on the new, path of progress. Goals. I can't trick myself anymore. I, I've <laughs> lost that capacity to, to do that. So then the other thing I was watching Meghan Markle and there's all the memes that I've seen about it, whether, you know, I, there's a handful of things, I think. One, the memes about how rich people can't complain. I actually think it's really dumb because the only thing that matters, we've talked about Avicii as, as an example, like how do you feel? I don't know how she feels on the inside. There's also criticism of uh, the PR game that may or may not be going on. But all that aside, if someone feels lousy and they have $10 million or $100 million or a billion dollars, I'd just rather be the person without the money and the good feelings. Sure. <laughs> so that yeah, that was, I, I, it's so weird that we view privilege in such narrow terms. And we've mentioned that before. I won't go deep into it. But just, you know, she mentioned being suicidal. And if what, it, what, when was she suicidal? When she was the Duchess of Sussex. And oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. so not, not when she was 16. No, this no. Post-marrying Harry. This is as a result of getting what she clearly wanted at some point. Got it. So and this is after being a TV, I don't know, star is the right word, but she was on a major TV show. Then she married the Prince of England. And then she, she had was the wedding. Depressed. And then what she says is that they told her that for PR reasons that she shouldn't go out. She was stuck inside. And people go, oh, boohoo, Buckingham Palace or whatever. But still, like whatever, whatever the feeling was, she felt lousy, mm -hmm. and you could say her reasons weren't good, but uh, you know, you could be the, you could be the Duchess of Sussex, and it doesn't it doesn't matter. Uh, I just see this constantly as I get glimpses, both via television and stuff, into how people feel, and behind the scenes, I talk to uh, people that have done well for themselves, well, and you find out pretty constantly that the same insecurities, self doubts afflict people at the absolute top of the pyramid, and sometimes it's even even worse than you would see in like a small town or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to romanticize what it is to to be uh, impoverished or anything like that. But I actually do think that there is a like a crest to the hill at happy, not keeping up with the Joneses, separated from a from a social media and oh, television yeah. life. Like there's there's no, a I, middle class America that I'd be like that. 
there's something to that. I actually think great. the best, I've thought about this. I actually think the best thing you could be in turn, if you're trying to optimize your happiness, kind of upper middle class, but living in a middle class area such that you make more than the people around you, but they don't necessarily know it because you're not trying, you're not trying to show it off, but just, you know it. And it's all comparative to your community, right? So no one is rocking whatever the, the Ferrari car. So you don't feel like you have to rock the Ferrari car. Mm -hmm. I think that's the, I think that's the best way to be happy. Maybe just be in a, in a neighborhood that doesn't make you feel lacking. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, or, or to have a greater degree of cooperation. So it feels less competitive because there are, I don't know, there's, there's groups and, and in which I don't feel, I don't think competitive with people. So such that, I mean, we have friends that make a lot more than me and I really don't think I would care. I would love for them to be my next door neighbor and have a bigger house and bigger cars and a bigger pool. Yeah. Uh, that would be, that would be amazing. So well, yeah, yeah, it all depends what your metrics are. Yeah. I think some people are wired for money and some people just aren't. The privilege thing is interesting too, because we talked about with Prince Harry, cause Prince Harry and I think Meghan Markle's pretty into this, the mm. idea that there's a uh, privilege to being white. And so Harry's been reading a lot of books about the privilege of being white. And he said, I finally realized the privilege I had mm-hmm. from being white. Like, <laughs> Harry, I don't think your privilege comes from being white, my man. I actually think you and Eminem had very different levels of privilege growing up. Yeah, You're a prince. And I think it's interesting that that's not what he landed on. The obvious advantage that he had was I'm his sure. Family. I'm sure at some point he did. I'm but sure. Then we talked about it. His mom died yeah. when he was really young. Yeah. So what is privilege? Was Harry privileged because he was a prince or was would he have happily traded the entire time to Dude. bring his mom back to life and give up all the fame, all the wealth, all the royalty just to be a lower middle class guy whose mom and dad were alive? I know I would have. I mean, That's that, that, that I, I seems, that seems yes. like so thoughtless if so, that had happened to me. Of course, so it, is, in an instant. And so that I think, yeah, we have privilege exists. And it's just interesting to think about what it actually means because Mm -hmm. there's stuff that never gets brought up like IQ, happiness set point, what your relationship is with your parents. Mm -hmm. And I actually think it's, it might make sense to have a society that from a government perspective does try to figure out how to help people based on their privilege. But I think we have completely underestimated the amount of variables that go into that. And Mm -hmm. I I just had that thinking about Harry. It's like, it's obviously not because he's white, it's because he's a prince. And then it's like, well, I don't know. Was he privileged? I wouldn't have traded. With your him. mom died. It was all over the news <laughs> yeah. all the time. Everybody was gossiping and talking about when your family. When I was 10, yeah. coming home from school to see my mom and then my dad would come home from work yeah. and we would eat with my sister, my mom, and my dad. I had more privilege probably than Harry who was dealing with the death of his mom. So mm-hmm. it's just interesting to think about. And we've said this, even if it didn't happen, the like clearly there is some, or not clearly, it appears that there is some connection between wealth and happiness, especially at the lower levels of wealth. Mm-hmm. But I'm not even convinced that if he'd lived in Buckingham Palace and, and had everything given and his mom hadn't died and he'd never, I'm not convinced that he wouldn't be in a bed in a well, yeah, worse is, position than you. Fame is interesting. I mean, money and fame, I don't think should be tied together. And he obviously got both. But everybody who's been a child star says they would never wish it upon mm-hmm. anyone. So I do think fame at a young age appears to have a pretty terrible cost for most people. Yeah. Well, so that was just what I'd, I'd watched this week. And I was, uh, I appreciate these shows and I watch them on purpose. <laughs> One, I watch them to get riled up because they're, it's fun to yell at the television when stupid things are said. But yeah, just, just to see how frustrated and sad people, I will say with the Meghan Markle thing, there was a lot, there was allegations of racism from the family and I'm sure they, they'll, um, 
they'll have something to say about that. But what I did, my perspective that I haven't seen other people say, and I'll share it only because I haven't heard it before, is that it was a PR piece, pretty obviously. Uh, at the beginning, they had this funny statement where Oprah says to Megan, you know, I uh, just want to be clear, you haven't been paid to be here. And I laughed. It was like, are you kidding? Like, she called you. <laughs> you yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. she has to be here. <laughs> like, the insinuation that that's the way the payment would work is goofy, even though you're both going to, you know, I guess technically get what you want out of this. But what I did see, no, not saying she is a good or a bad person, but she was trying to cover her rage, like, especially at the end of this. And you can say that it's justified, unjustified, whatever. But Again, my thought was, man, what a frustrating thing to sit down and know that you're performing for an audience to perceive you in a certain way and, and perceive them in a certain way and see her as um, simultaneously the aggrieved victim, but as the turn the other cheek person, magnanimous, when really the answer is somewhere in between. But certainly you are fucking pissed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you're saying you are that she, she, because she thinks it's a more sympathetic character try to go in with sadness. With sadness. But yes. by the end sadness, of it, hurt, and and she regretted to say the ways in which they'd hurt her. But it's like, come on, you're you're here to say that they hurt you, mm -hmm. which is maybe reasonable. Like I don't know what happened, but you can get up here. But to know that you have to perform and hide the anger so that people say the people that you've never met say a certain thing about you. Yeah, yeah. What a what a frustrating way to live. And I don't aspire to to that at all though i can totally imagine what it's like and to, to have the entire world talk about you in a way that you think is unfair false completely flips the story wrong how that would infuriate you and to know that the only way to potentially get that to change is to perform because if you come out guns blazing this is you know screaming this is total bullshit you're just gonna add oxygen to the fire so i, I don't know i wonder i watched an interesting video about how the, the normal pr playbook doesn't work anymore when That's it comes to um, internet, because it used to be that the world worked in news cycles and news news channels have editors, so they'll at some point pivot a story. It was pretty interesting. I forget the guy. It was just some YouTube guy who used to work in mainstream media, and he said people, celebrities, are still running the mainstream media PR playbook, and they haven't adjusted for Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, uh. and it's a different ball game. So he had suggestions based on Machiavelli's The Prince, basically saying this this is out of date and people have to update and so certain things like going on the offensive is something that he said you would never do against the mainstream media but it's important to do now or front running a front story. Run a story yeah and so never saying you're sorry <laughs> no it's a, i i i wish i i had watched it months ago i wish that i recalled more of it but basically just at a high level that this idea that you have to be sad or magnanimous and you can't show your anger mm -hmm. That may not be true anymore. And I don't know if it's, it is or not, but yeah. uh, the, the basically the times are a changing and the way that you handle PR, handle being in the public with all the social media stuff is different and people just haven't updated for that yeah. yet. Well, it seems like it seems like there's a Gordian knot thing here if you clarify your goals. Like if your goal is to have the audience generally receive you in a certain way as measured by headlines, Twitter likes, et cetera. Okay, there's, there's a playbook to maybe get that. But if if the goal is to be happy, the thing is like you have to sever yourself from giving a shit about this. Mm -hmm. So you gotta you gotta do a John Mayer. You gotta move to Montana, buy a hundred acres, and not talk to anybody for several years, and then maybe make a couple acoustic albums. <laughs> like <laughs> like that's that's he was he was reviled for a period, yeah, and instead dude, he, of trying to change people's minds, he's like, 
I'm going to go get a big dog and move to Montana. Yeah. And then I'll see you in 10 years uh, with some music that's a little bit less poppy. He than- was the harbinger of uh, what was coming in terms of cancel culture. Yeah. He got and- canceled for some crazy reasons. But he, again, he he wasn't canceled at all compared to today. Like nobody went at his record label or his this, you can't have him. They just wrote about him uh, disparagingly. And the way that he dealt with that was to just, he's like, this is mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> This is Montana. I'm going to get a That's cowboy funny. hat. One of the things people were mad at is he said an ex was good in bed. It's yeah. Like, Am I not allowed to publicly, he, if I get asked, say that yeah. an ex is good at sex? Well, he also has a very oh, by the way, way. Ar- he called her sexual napalm. And, and Ariana yeah. Grande is allowed to talk about Pete's dick everywhere. <laughs> talk about big dick summer or whatever. That's totally fine. Yeah. I don't no, know. No, it was, it was, um, yeah, he's got a, He's got like a lyricist, a lyricist's way of trying to speak about things that is gets that, him in trouble. That when you when you excerpt things, just gets him in trouble. Uh, but speaking of speaking of words that get you in trouble, NBA, you saw this. Oh yeah, I saw this. <laughs> My, Myers Leonard said something anti-Semitic while playing Call of Duty. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I on the one hand. You do what you want to, and I'm Jewish, so. What do you, what do you think? This is my first question. Is, is it anti-Semitic or anti-anything to use uh, a slur in an expletive? I really think you got to go to the person. Is yeah. it true? I, I mean, it's, it's tough. It's impossible to do for everyone, but this is why we have court cases. You don't just find someone, killed someone. You go, I know what the penalty is for this. Mm-hmm, yeah. It's like, well, wait, did the person attack that person yeah, with yeah. a weapon? Is this person. Was it, was it premeditated? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. So it's like this. I, I get that. Oh, we can't do this for everyone, but we kind of do do this mm-hmm. for everyone with our justice system. So, yeah, he's playing Call of Duty. I don't play Call of Duty, but there's a culture of just saying horrible shit to each other while you play. And he says a slur against Jews. Does this make Miles Myers Leonard anti-Semitic? I don't know. If I got into his house and I saw a Mein Kampf and a, <laughs> you know what I mean, and a swastika hanging on his wall, I'd be like, yeah, yeah. with all the evidence gathered, we can say this guy's yeah. anti-Semitic. But I don't know if his wife is Jewish and he's raising his kids Jewish and he goes to synagogue every weekend, but he just yeah. said this out of anger because his video game character died, then he's not anti-Semitic. And I'm sure the truth is in the yeah. middle. Actually, but I guess I, my point is just... Do you think so? So I come down to... I say, I say horrible words when I play video games. Words that will get me canceled if they're... If, when oh, PlayStation yeah, well, I don't releases think the chat I would box. imagine he doesn't have a Jewish wife and a Jewish kid to well, go to synagogue every weekend. What I, what I come to is that expletives... Like, if you, if you had taught me when I was little that the worst thing that I could say was Rumpelstiltskin, I'd be Rumpelstiltskinning sure. all over. And similarly, if you teach me that darn is the word that I use instead of, you know, like I'll say darn instead of damn as an expletive uh, because it's just like the the thing that comes out of you. Now, you can train this. I've thought of this like I can train myself for fear of cancel culture, but I know what I fucking mean when I say these things. And it has nothing to do with any person or any feeling about anything. It's like these are the words that were baked into me at a young age that that you say when you stub your toe or you well yeah and i also think it depends is this is this sentence part of a five sentence paragraph that's all anti-semitic against someone he knows is jewish you know what i mean is myers leonard's just in the street shouting at someone who's wearing a yarmulke well that's one thing or is he just yelling at some guy who's not jewish because he's playing call of duty i i think even to just say that the words are the same without context seems crazy to me. So yeah, the other thing that's interesting, I just I just realized, so he's going to have to go to uh, diversity training of some sort. What's interesting is that it's it's not a conversation. Like if you were to try to change someone's mind about white supremacy, you wouldn't do it by catching them, yelling at them, taking the training and speaking at them. 
you would do it by eliciting their beliefs, you know, and 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 having a dialogue. And yeah, this is how the this is how a black reporter befriended the leader of the KKK, and then got him to to hang up his his Klansman robes and and leave. Yeah, he was like he was like a grand dragon. They call him dragons or something. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but it's it's just interesting. Why it's, do you know they're called dragons? Why Ron? do you know? I didn't know that. <laughs> I what's his name? Daryl Davis. I watched his I watched his TED talk. Mm-hmm. And he comes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Very interesting. Interesting. Very interesting. So he, yeah, it just, just that there's no dialogue. It's like, if there's no, oh, do you think this? Oh, tell me why. And then he's like, oh, well, when I was little, there was this kid and he did X, Y, and Z. And his family was like, like, that would be good to know, to, to know if, if it is the case that you harbor negative beliefs about a group of people, why? Yeah. Rather than just have me tell you that this is wrong and you can't say these words. Cause here's the thing that you'll never catch that guy saying the word again. Not on like he's going to get smart to the punishment. Well, I've thought about this, too, in terms of what counts as racist or anti-Semitic. Like if someone says the Jews control the media. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's true, but if 100 percent of media companies are owned by Jews, (laughs) it seems like a fair thing. But here's the thing, I guess, like, what is the Jews? Like, it's not like I don't get to control the media. So maybe that's not accurate. But if you say the media is all controlled by Jews. Well, if that's true, that all of the media companies are owned by Jews, then that is true. But I guess mm-hmm. the Jews don't control the media because I don't get a vote just because I'm Jewish. It's not like I get to tell you. Yeah. So I guess it all, it just, there's a line between like accurate versus generalization. And then there's a line between statement versus offensive statement. Mm-hmm. And I think just because you say Jew doesn't mean that what you're about to say is accurate or inaccurate or anti-semitic or not Mm -hmm. so it's a little bit different because he didn't say jew he said kike Mm -hmm. which is a no-no but yeah i mean i was just thinking about this in general i was like okay what how do i feel about this he said this i wasn't even thinking about talking about the podcast i was like how do i feel about this we've been talking about racism and it's not often that a public anti-semitic thing occurs like am i upset by this would i be upset if i were on the other side of this conversation like how does this and i i just think it's it's so case by case is what mm-hmm. I came down to. Like yeah. It really depends on what was being said before. Dude, who knows if the uh, the guy in his ear was saying shit before that, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? About his mom or something. Mm-hmm. It's just without context, I came to the conclusion I have no possible idea. It's funny that like, I mean, we've talked about this, how the words that you can't say have more. When I was little, it was F-U-C-K. That was the one that, mm-hmm. that was the most thing. And if you're on Twitch, you can just firebomb that word. Yeah, yeah. You can just lay lay it over the landscape and see things. You can, yeah, you can, I guess you could talk about an NPC, I think. I don't know that you're allowed to say it to another person, but in with with total vitriol, with words that are, you know, obviously swear words and have been for a long time, but as long as they don't touch and and um, before he was Coffeezilla, what was his name? Coffee Break did a video on how the the words you can't say have shifted, how it's moved from words relating to uh, like the private parts of your body, asshole, dick, um, fucking is about you know having sex and those sorts of things. How it's it's moved from that to slurs, which are groups, you know demeaning a group of people mm-hmm. uh, and that if you go back through at least American media history, you can watch this sort of movement from one group of words that are the worst to obviously the next to the next. I guess it just calls out what we've mentioned a hundred times, which is the completely relative nature of 
of what is acceptable and unacceptable and how trying to enforce it in a country of 330 million people that all come from different places that mean different things when they say them as if each word has a is is a mathematical equation like say this this is what it means is just it's ridiculous <laughs> and and uh actually doesn't solve the problem that it, that it purports to which is there's people that hate people for inappropriate and no reason at all and we need to deal with that yeah, but the word doesn't tell you if anyone hates it. Doesn't anyone. tell you. I, anything. I can think of there was this there was a rapper who brought someone up from his his audience to sing on stage with him, mm-hmm. and so she sang the words to the song that he wrote, and one of them was the N word, and she was white, and he grabbed the mic and freaked out and threw her off stage. Mm-hmm. It was like, well, what that clearly wasn't out of hate, that was out of love for you and your music, and she was just singing the music. You know what I mean? That's so different. If that same fan had gotten on stage grabbed the mic and said you're a and then said yeah, that yeah. word like that's just such a different context so it seems obvious to say it i mean it's so weird to talk to you about this because you and i are like yeah duh <laughs> and then in a world well this was, in a world that doesn't this seem was to an interesting one this. though because it's easy for me to say yeah duh when it's not me right but so yeah. this was a jewish slur so i got to actually reflect on it I, yeah. I was like well how do i feel about this i feel like having any I, any idea of who he is as a person would be crazy of me. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. And if he's constantly saying it, you know what I mean? If, if, it's, yeah. if it's go-to insult well, then every it's also, day. And then there's, there's um, and they did suspend him and find him basically for the game. He's going to miss two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars or something. But it's, there's a level of. He got suspended? Yeah, for a week or something. From from the heat training facilities, and he got dropped from his Twitch part. I mean, dude, he got. Well, dropped from Twitch yeah, yeah. makes more well, sense Twitch, to me. Twitch, Twitch lets people go for, for all kinds of things. So I'm not that that's part of the course, but I don't know if you have anything more on that. I just thought that it was no, no, it's just interesting because I know that basketball players call each other the N word sometimes. And I know that they called Luca some, a white boy at one point boy, yeah. and that no one got suspended. So it's interesting. I wonder why he got suspended for this. Uh, I think it's because in critical race theory and critical theory, there are oppressor groups and oppressed groups and you are allowed to demean oppressor groups and not oppressed groups and jews and black people are categorized according to critical race theory as oppressed groups and white people are categorized as oppressor groups i mean interesting yeah all right uh so nfts i've mentioned this before but this is just one this is just one thing that i saw so in these videos this is how you know we're 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 deep in a bubble is the the use cases i'm not an nft expert i don't understand the blockchain the, at all there will i'm sure there's a good use for nft there technology. is oh no there definitely is this is not meant to condemn the underlying technology of nfts well there's a couple interesting things nfts are a way to have uh digital scarcity where one token is not replaceable by another one so you want to release 100 gifts of your artwork uh you can release only 100 gifts now technically you could look at the gif on several other websites, but it's not the original. And we see the same mentality in the art world, which is like, you know, I guess none of these are are originals, but like there's an original Mona Lisa and then you can have a replica of it for four bucks in your house. And everybody, nobody cares about that because the original is the original. And so people will probably feel the same way about the digital world and that this is the first and it matters, all these sorts of things. So I can see NFTs working for art, for baseball cards and basketball cards and basketball videos and those sorts of things that we already have analogs for in the real world. But what I'm hearing people say, oh, and and one thing if you're not familiar is that one of the value, the pieces of value of NFTs is when 
you sell a piece of art as an artist and it's this right here, you make that first commission, a hundred bucks. If you get really famous and somebody sells that for a hundred thousand, you don't see any of that later on. Mm -hmm. The way that it works is you actually get some degree of kickback mm -hmm. in an NFT. So for artists, it's awesome because it's like, oh, wow, if, if the value of my work appreciates, I'll see some of that above the original price, but not 100% of the, the profit that that person makes. So the thing that I'm hearing is that people are saying, oh, my God, this is going to be amazing because imagine, for instance, and I saw not I'm not saying he's a bad dude, but he's he's a finance guy, Andre Jeek. J-I-K-H, he was talking about, uh, like, imagine if you could have bought an NFT of Elon Musk back when he was at PayPal for a meeting with Elon Musk. And they're talking about NFTs for course access and NFTs for attendance to events. Mm -hmm. And look how cool that can be because, you know, you could buy it Elon Musk's time in 1999. And then if you had that NFT, you could sell it in 2020. And what would that be worth? Because Elon Musk has appreciated so much. Oh, my God, this is amazing. This analysis, which I've heard several times, to me is ridiculous <laughs> because why would anyone sell access to themselves in the future and allow the person who bought it to profit from the increase in the value of their time? Like if I'm Elon Musk or I'm Charlie Hooper and I could sell my time for $100 an hour today, why wouldn't I sell it once today? And then if I'm worth more in 20 years, sell it directly again in 20 years when I feel like having the meeting or right. and if I have a digital course yeah, yeah. and it's worth 500 today, I'll sell it for 500 today and I'll sell it for 100,000 when it's worth 100,000 and I will have no middlemen. I'll allow no distribution. Yeah, whoever's, selling, whoever's <laughs> selling their time today thinks that it's not going to be worth more in the future. Like Elon Musk, you, you couldn't have gone back in time to Elon Musk when he was working at PayPal and offered him $100 for an hour of his time in 20 years. He just would have told you no. So yeah. today's Elon Musk is not going to sell you an NFT for his time in 20 years. The only person who will do it is the person who believes their time will be worth less than they sell it to you for. Yes. In which case, you will not be able to dump it to anyone else yeah. because that person has not done enough. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's uh, these use cases that I'm hearing, at least this particular realm, are so poorly thought out. And and I guess people are still talking about, you know, the, the things that can be NFT'd, I think. You know, but but whatever. There's a 1.9 trillion dollar cash injection into the economy. Yeah. Oh yeah. We're in the are... <laughs> we're in the middle of a bubble. Also, I just thought of a clarification from from the Jew thing that I wanted to say. Mm -hmm. I actually do think there's a difference between saying the Jews run the media versus the media is run by Jewish, like a couple of Jewish people, because yeah. it treats people as a monolith. Yeah. And I think that's the big problem we're having today. So when you say like the Jews run the media, it makes you think that every Jew's involved. Mm -hmm. And I just I just think come back to thinking about like white people having privilege or black people having privilege as if to say that Eminem, Prince Harry, LeBron's kid and someone from Compton are all the same. You know what I mean? And so that, I think that's the problem that comes from referring to groups mm -hmm. just in general. So I actually think that's that's the danger of saying anyone runs anything is that the, they're individuals. They're not mm -hmm. they're not all one category. Sure. Sure. I agree. I agree that it's a problem. 100 percent. And that it's inaccurate speech and it's not very useful and is, indic is indicative of low resolution thinking well i just think what is the punishment yes for that sort well, of sorry thing? i was but i was thinking like what is the dangers of this it's if you say okay so 100 percent of prisons are owned by christian people let's mm -hmm. say and your dad's in prison so then you go out and just start beating up or killing christian people yeah, yeah. because you say christians run prisons but the christian person that runs the prison isn't the christian person you're beating up so 
that's the problem in general with categorizing people and, and treating cuts, them as groups. It cuts both ways because then the fear of like, oh no, we can't say this, it misses the nuance. So at the beginning of uh, COVID and even still today, there's this, this is a Chinese virus. It was a lab leak virus. And these are hypotheses, which I have no idea if they're true, but could be true that the virus may have originated in a Chinese lab. And so calling it a Chinese virus is not entirely false. The problem comes when you when you then go, anybody who is Chinese or Chinese descendant is, is responsible for this. For this. It's like, yeah. no, it's, it's a handful of people who may be responsible if this is the case. Yeah. And one of the characteristics that they have is that they're Chinese. They also might be scientists. They also might be between the ages of 20 and 45. Yeah, yeah. Like there's, there's, there's a lot of groups into which they, they fall that they could be described by. Uh, but that doesn't mean that everybody in that group is therefore culpable. In fact, it, just go at, if it is the case that it was a leak, we would just like to find the people that were responsible for it and see how it happened and, and meet out justice accordingly. Yeah, I do think that's actually one of the dangers to everyone from the, today's uh, focus on thinking about things in terms of race or in terms of religion or whatever mm -hmm. it might be is that it does actually train you to think that way. Like it trains you to look at people and think of them in those characteristics mm -hmm. such that you look at someone and you go, that's a white cis male mm -hmm. or that's a black gay woman. And that becomes your defining thing that you think about when you see them because it's how you're being told to think about them. It's how that people are talked about in the media and on YouTube channels and how certain public figures talk about themselves. And so you 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 actually train a populace to think that way by mm -hmm. constantly emphasizing it so much. And I think that there's like good work to be done in terms of uh getting people in general to be less hateful and and not to make any decisions based on race, religion, sexuality, gender yeah but when you talk about it so much i actually do i do fear that you do the opposite and you convince people that those are the most important things about a person yeah well this is i had this a very similar thought when i saw the reparations i don't know why are back in the news and we may have talked about this before but i was just listening to somebody on youtube talk about reparations and it was very interesting to watch might have been charlemagne on bill maher to jump from bill maher is talking about um, do you think that the U.S. government should pay de descendants of slavery? And then Charlemagne immediately jumped to, yes, black people should receive reparations. Yeah, yeah And it was just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, that's not, <laughs> that's not how it worked. Like, Pump there's black race. people that came over after slavery was gone. Not every black person is a descendant well, of a and slave. Then, and then, okay, what? and then they go, what about redlining? So, okay, well, listen, we can talk about that, but clearly redlining and slavery are different uh different would, degrees of harm would use different reparation amounts and if we're going to include beyond slavery like one would also think that we should start reparations for like i don't know the people of vietnam or the people of iraq how about the or, asian americans that were put in internment camps sure or or the mexicans who no longer live in mexico because we took california texas arizona nevada <laughs> in, in what i think at the time and even since then has been called one of the most unjust wars of human history like uh the u.s government owes a debt if it is if it is a persistent entity to people all over the world who it is harmed in uh, stark contrast to its legal obligation and what it said that it would do, and we're you know we're involved in the United Nations, we have promises that we've made there to people as as world citizens, and even if you want to scope it down and say just people in the United States of America that the, the U.S. is harmed and is reneged on it its um, contracts with reparations do not extend one to every black person, and in fact they extend to people far beyond that category. They extend to, I mean, we could obviously think of some uh, American Indian or we could think of people in in um, 
I mentioned that that might have been uh, bumped from being inside of Mexico to now being outside of Mexico and the resulting things that may have come from that. So the reason that I bring it up is because these categories become all encompassing such that when you say reparations to the descendants of slavery, we just jump black people. I'm actually all I'm I'm really surprised it's so hard to just say help poor people. Well, this, yeah, man. So I, I, I'm genuinely, because it's like, well, we, what we want to do is help people who were born into situations that were, they're less likely to have a chance to be successful financially mm-hmm. or they're less likely to, whatever it might be, have a chance to thrive by whatever our definition is. And we're going to segment that. Why don't we segment that by literally what I just said, which is who was born into rough situations that didn't have a chance to thrive? Mm-hmm. Like, why would we... I just don't understand it. It seems so funny that we dance around the idea that we should help the poor instead of just saying, let's just help the poor. And if this helps mostly black people, mostly white people, mostly this people, mostly who cares? Mm-hmm. Like, just just go help the people that need help. Yeah. And I would add an, uh, one amendment to this. I generally agree with that analysis. You, you want to be careful what type of behavior you're incentivizing. So the way in which it was helped would the, the, the specific policy would become important sure. such that it was lifting people out of poverty and giving them uh, you just want to set their own thrive. musculature to to continue onward. But you don't want to create an, a permanent underclass of people dependent on those sorts of things. But yeah, I'm generally for large wealth redistributions. And here's here's where I go crazy. Uh, not just within the United States of America. I actually do sincerely believe that uh, we, if you want to talk about reparations, I think one of the first places to start is Iraq where I think 100,000 civilians have died. And you can say we dumped a lot of money into Iraq, but we dumped it and we and that we've done some peacekeeping missions there. But I don't think that, I don't believe that the families of people who were blown up when, and we go, yeah, are bad, have received a check. I, I could be wrong there, but they don't seem to have gotten any money from us directly. Now, they might have gotten all sorts of ancillary things with bases and this and that, but we, we went into the country on false pretenses, removed Saddam Hussein, uh, caused more bloodshed certainly than would have happened there if we just hadn't. Uh, and I think there's a there's a serious debt owed to the people still alive now. Then the question becomes, and what everybody will say was like, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to go to Iraq. I certainly wouldn't have voted for it given the given the desire. What is my responsibility as someone who has lived in the United States of America? This is another thing I think about with reparations is that one of the arguments for it um, is that white people have, benefited from a system that goes beyond slavery that includes redlining etc um that the and they have in ways that they may not even see have benefited and so where their their station in life is in part stolen from somebody else and i go whether we can debate how that's true if it's true on this individual level for the person who is in the middle of rural west virginia if it's as true for them as it is for some other people but that same line of argument can be extended to the to the world where the US for the last 300 years has been highly interventionist in other nations has deposed leaders has done it to help our corporations which people have worked out of all different skin colors and received better wages than they would have if they had the bananas coming straight out of Guatemala uh, and that you know we just printed what 6 to 8 trillion dollars and we're able to offload much of the cost of that to the rest of the world because we have the re- world reserve currency which we set up after we won the war, you know what I mean? Like, and we, so we've been essentially been able to tax the rest of the world to pay our own citizens, which everyone who's received a check has benefited from and everyone who has received money 
from into their business from someone who has received a check has benefited from. So I guess what I'm saying is if, if you feel owed by the U.S. government, consider what you probably owe to the rest of the world that the U.S. government has done, not quite on your behalf, but that you have also benefited from. Because I think if there were a genuine, honest attempt at reparations and it wasn't just one skin color to another, what you would see is a tremendous amount of money flowing outside of the United States of America from all of us <laughs> to the third world, to Latin America, to various different places. And I don't think you'd have many American citizens that were into reparations if that were that were the way that it was conducted. Yeah, I think the argument against that from a lot of people is going to just be my government's my government's not responsible for those people. My government's responsible for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that to me holds uh, perhaps legal weight and no moral weight, <laughs> which is like, oh, so now we like the letter of the law, you know, like all of a sudden when it's convenient. And I guess if I, if, uh, this isn't you, but if I could speak to someone about it, I guess what I would what I'd be aiming to expose is that we've talked about this. We all want what's best for us and our uh, people that we feel similar to and that are our, our kin and people that we are rooting for. And we can often dress that up in, uh, take the moral high ground with it. One of the ways that you know that you are close to the moral high ground is when you are making a sacrifice, uh, especially given that, you know, if again, the, the same arguments that work for a lot of critical race theory, I think flow naturally into a greater global collective that that we should be distributing money outside of it and to say no no uh that border which has shifted based on that war that i mentioned and now it goes all the way down to texas but not past the rio grande that's magic (laughs) and this is what my government owes me is just uh it might be legally true but it, it doesn't hold much moral weight in my mind you're saying the math is look at everything the u.s government has done that's negatively impacted anyone and then go from there if no, I'm saying I'm saying and that could be it. Pick a principle. You don't get to pick. I want reparations for this for this specific thing to this. And, and wow, what do you know? Uh, the group that I'm sympathetic to winds up receiving things like how miraculous. What I'm saying is pick a principle by which uh, debt can be incurred by someone who was not alive at for a thing, did not decide on that thing and uh, maybe just benefited from being around that without any volition of their own. And if, if you develop a principle, apply that evenly. Uh, and if there's limitations to, oh, no, this can only occur within this state, like, okay, look, why don't we do it state by state? Because I live, I grew up in Pennsylvania. Like, why nationwide? Why? Like, That's actually an interesting like, point. You, you want to draw say, artificial borders. Yeah, yeah. If you're going to say U.S. only. Okay, I say Pennsylvania only. Yeah, you know, go state I, by state. Yeah, I, like. No slaves in Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah. I've never heard that before. It's, yeah, no, because people tend to draw the line nationally. They don't go global, but they also don't go. They go right where it right where it works for them is what I find. And we had we had a similar conversation with Bosch where he didn't want to extend beyond the United States. And we didn't say at the time, but in reflection, because we were talking about redistribution, what I would have said is, okay, like you like arbitrary borders that are legally drawn. I'm going to pick the community of Santa Monica. Yeah. yeah. And what do you know? (laughs) I don't know anybody, anything because everyone here is relatively affluent or I owe, you know, there's there's homeless people. So I owe some money to to those people. But uh, I think. I think the arbitrary nature of it is is pretty quickly exposed. And I am someone who is genuinely interested in having a fair world because I, I recognize that like my the, the privileges that I've had extend so far beyond my skin color. It's just ridiculous. And I try to do what I can to give back. And I often think that I'll never be able to ever come close. Speaking of which, 
charitywater.org slash charisma. Yeah. We're going to match uh, Charisma on Command. is going to match the first $100,000 of charitable donations. All of the money goes towards getting clean water to people who do not have access to it. So charitywater.org slash charisma. Uh, yeah, it's, it's crazy. I mean, there's you want to talk about privilege. There's people who get mouth tumors at age nine because they're just mm-hmm. drinking absolutely filthy water. There's people who kill themselves because after walking miles for drinkable water every day, they'll drop the container that they use to get the water and that just breaks their hearts and they kill themselves. And you want to talk about privilege like that's someone who has is in need of help yeah. from people with the privilege of drinking clean water. So, yeah, look at this guy. Yeah. Charitywater.org slash charisma will match the first hundred thousand dollars donated. Yeah. So so we're going to do that. Uh, one thing there was a couple of thoughts. One, as a business, we we should I've heard people say we should pick a percentage that we give and we can even talk about it in our sales page for Charisma University because I, mm-hmm. I think that that would make people feel good to sometimes it can feel disconnected. It can feel like, oh, we're just doing this randomly. But the truth is it is it is a percentage of what people are spending sure. on us. So we should one do that. The second thing I saw was a Patreon question that I glanced in the inbox and it was, have we seen this particular website, which is uh it has an emphasis on donating to causes and then getting video updates. And I think that's really cool and something that Charity Water was very innovative with at the beginning and has slowed down with. No, they've slowed down because they can't travel because of COVID. Oh, I know. I know. What I mean is, no, no. I mean, at the beginning, they took GPS and photos. And 10 or 12 years later, they give you GPS and photos. Ah, uh, I got you. And technology has moved forward. We got Zoom calls. We got all this kind of stuff. Uh I it was great then. It's cool now. I think that they could do even more fundraising if they tried to find this model of like mm. video and well, that good. sort of stuff. I would call them tomorrow. Yeah, they, yeah. They wanted to ask me how they can. I don't know why me. But they were like, "Hey, you have a good YouTube channel. You understand social media. Like, will you help us figure out how to fundraise better?" I was like, "I really oh, dude, don't think I'm the right person for this phone dude, call." Dude, <laughs> I got a video from a well that I made with a person, and there were translations in the bottom talking about how it impacted their life. I mean, come on, that yeah, would yeah. be that would be monumental. And we already know this when there's this was in a predictably irrational. When you go to people and you say, hey, there's 900 million people don't have access to clean water, yada, yada, yada. For just 40 cents a day, you can do it. The amount of money that you raise is like on average 30 cents per ask. When you say, hey, there's this little girl. Her name is Rokia. She's nine years old. Here's her photo. She every day can't go to school because she's got to walk, you know, two miles to pick up this water and take it back. Her mom is sick. What can you spare? People donate like four times as much. Mm. It's a smaller problem. You feel like you could help. It's a person. And I think that they could do even better at tapping into that that piece of connection, which I, which technology can enable more than it did yeah. at, their, at their inception. I'll let them know. I'll let them know tomorrow. Dope. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. 
but nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. What do you got? Anything else? Yeah. So we talked about this on the podcast before, the idea that when you are trying to start a business, you should start something where even if you fail, you're better off for it. You've learned a skill. You know what I mean? That's Mm -hmm. why it's not necessarily good to just chase the latest get-rich-quick scheme. So I had a phone call with this guy. He just is the perfect example of it. So I wanted to share his story. He uh, was a tech... He's a tech grad who went and started a telecom company and raised money. They were going to do global SIM cards so that when you traveled internationally, you didn't have to get new SIM cards. And basically completely flopped after several years, lost all the money, went bankrupt because other companies just kind of beat them to it. Yeah. He had to move back home at age 28 with his parents, felt like a complete failure and was just super depressed about how his life had gone. And then ended up joining the Ethereum team early on because what he had learned from doing his tech startup was a lot of stuff about hardware and software and launching a business and blah, 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 and is now filthy rich with millions of dollars in Ethereum. Mm -hmm. And I just thought it was was a very interesting story because the guy was at the complete trough of feeling a failure at 28. And within five years, he was filthy rich. And it, it just hammered home that idea of, yeah, when you quit your job to start a business, the first one might not work, but you develop skills along the way. And we're so quick to emphasize how important it is to go to school and give up four years and 200 grand to learn something, but also so quick to call someone that does the same thing with a business a failure. Mm-hmm. And uh, just thought it was a cool anecdote from a guy that I met. Now he's now that he's wealthy, he's chasing his... Uh, dream of personal development and psychedelic mental health stuff. And he's, funny. he's going deep into that realm. That's how we ended up getting connected. What you just said is uh, part of the issue with college is that you can't fail because the bar is set. You can fail, but the bar sets so low. It's like it's going to cost you four years and 200 grand and you're not going to get any money until year five. It is it is a rare feat to fail out of college. Like you have to try. You're their customer. They're going to pull you through. Mm-hmm. It is a rare feat to succeed in business. But if you take four years and you come out of college with a graduate degree and a cap and have nothing except some experiences to show for it, that we view that as like, oh, that person's on the path versus if you took those same four years, learned a ton of stuff. Lost 200 grand. Or or pretend you, yeah, lost (laughs) $200,000 and that person's a failure. That's so ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Because the only difference is that that person set their sights higher than the college student and might they, be equipped to go help ethereum and is almost <laughs> definitely better now well depending on what they did i would say there's a high likelihood if they did it intelligently that they're better positioned to do yeah. to make a positive impact when i came out of college man i walked into a business they're like hey, okay here's microsoft excel i had had five years of college and i was lost yeah, yeah. and what i do i learned excel in three weeks from the guy that sat next to me he was great Stu. he's the man like <laughs> thank god for him thank you Stu. But but I wasn't the only one that did, knew nothing about it. Yeah. There was I've mentioned this before. We're going to get to repeating ourselves on this podcast. It's episode 80. Sorry, guys, you've heard it all. <laughs> but uh, the myth of consulting that, you know, we can't you can't teach people how to think this way. Like you can't what if you have the consulting mindset, that's what we're looking for. We can teach you Excel. But the mindset is like 
Dude, I studied crack the case before this. Yeah, interview. yeah, that's what I was just going to say. Like it took me two hours of prep or, you know, maybe five hours of prep. And I went from having no idea how to answer your stupid questions to completely knocking them out of the park in your eyes. Yeah. Why do you why do you think <laughs> that you can't teach this? It's there's it's one of the most easily transferable skills that I have ever seen. Yeah. If you ask me to play the guitar in that amount of time. I could never do it. No, it's hilarious. You just go porters, <laughs> five forces, moats. Yeah, well, what it's I'd like, like a couple know, of mental frameworks. Yeah, yeah. Then you ask the three questions like, very good. Do you have any data on sales? Actually, and they, <laughs> they look at you and they pull out their little sheet. We do. <laughs> <laughs> These kids got it. No, what they're screening for that they don't recognize is compliance. It's like, look, will you go to school for four years, study a degree that has actually nothing to do with business, uh, jump through these hoops in the interview process, read this dumb book, all to get a job that has a moderate amount of prestige that you really understand nothing about. If so, you're the type of person that is going to come in here and do what we tell you. Uh, and, and you're smart enough based on your GPA to like compete and outperform other people trying the same thing. Uh, sorry, I don't. this doesn't mean that you're dumb if you're a consultant. This means that what they're screening for is not any sort of innate type of thinking pattern that is impossible to teach it is just will you stick around and do it and i actually think that um it's probably a good way to do it because if you really step back and take a what they purport to be a consultant's view of the consulting industry and what what i'm promised from it what i get from it can i do this better what you'll realize is like if I have the skills that I am alleged to have, I am way better served to leave this place, go do my own thing or consult on my own, take 100% of the billable hours or screw that, forget billable hours, take a percentage of lift there of profit. Like, why would I ever work for you when allegedly my skill set is that I can walk into any business and make it earn more money? I think I'll just do that. <laughs> a lot more. I mean, the, yeah. the, the allegation is that I can walk into a $1 billion profit company and through increasing revenue or cutting costs, make it a $1.2 billion profit company, make them 200 extra million and then just ask for five of it. Yeah. Why would I Why would I go to you? I'll just go make this guy $200 million a year oh, extra. Well, we have access. It's like, cool. I'll start with the $1 million business yeah. and then I'll do the 10. Or I'll just spend six I'll, months until yeah, yeah. I network my way up to the... <laughs> until I convince them to let me take a crack. Yeah. it's if you If you take a consultant's mindset... To the consulting industry. And I do want to say that the mindset that they teach you is a very good one. Mm -hmm. It's a very important one. It's not a bad mindset. It's just not unteachable. Like the way of breaking no, skip down consulting, but read crack the case, <laughs> the way of breaking down problems. And it, it is remarkable. I'll talk to people um, that are peers and that sort of stuff about their businesses and the lack of analysis that is done when people are we, we often encounter this when we bring people onto the team. We, we have what we call our ROI spreadsheet. And we've mentioned it before. We're basically, we write down everything that we're thinking of doing. We want to do SEO articles and we want to do this and that, the other thing. And we just quickly run through and make estimates based on numbers, which we have. We have numbers of website hits. We have, we have friends that have tried projects and we call them up and say, how did this go for you? Uh, and we just fill it out and say, how much do we estimate each project can make? How fun will it be for us to do? Does it have any intangibles that is just like, yeah, and the reason it's, just, it's good for our course students, you know, just just makes the course better. It's not going to make a ton of money, but the, but Charisma University becomes better. No, and the reason why is because people people are just giving bad advice publicly. So you'll read a blog post about how important yeah meta tags are on YouTube, or you'll read a blog post about how important it is that your business has to get on Snapchat or whatever yeah. it is, and it's very easy to get caught up in seeing some. You know, you see Gary Vee talk about every business has to be on Snapchat. You're like, 
oh, uh, you get all hyped up about it. And then you go and you run the numbers and you say, oh, wow, I'd have to knock this out of the park. I'd have to, to be this, one of the top 10 biggest Snapchats in the world. To make this <laughs> as worthwhile as incrementally improving my YouTube videos or yeah. doing just selling more Prism University memberships. And what we've found, for those of you that are curious, like what are the big things? One of them is always like, hey, let's contact our sponsors and ask for more money. So in, <laughs> so in one email, we'll call it, we'll buzz Audible and be like, hey, we'd like a raise. And it's like, cool, that worked. <laughs> and so it's you, you find that there are these high leverage, very easy things to do. And then what's cool is we can focus on the things that we want to do. It's like, okay, cool. We sent that email. We earned more money. Is there a project that you're interested in? It's like, yeah, this is one that I want to do. Cool. Make emotional mastery. It's not going to earn any money, but <laughs> you're interested. Might in help it. a couple of people. Yeah. So, uh, but anyway, that's the consultant mindset, which is to break problems down. That that is very uncommon. So it's a good mindset. I want to I want to uh, pivot on there, but stay on the betting on yourself thing. Yeah. We talked a little bit about if you were actually good at this, why wouldn't you just take lift? Yeah. You know what I mean? Why wouldn't you just make someone two hundred million dollars and then take five million? And I I was uh, reading the other day about George Lucas with the Star Wars mm -hmm. franchise. Have you heard about this? So uh, yeah. he he let the studio wanted to cut his pay because I guess they didn't have faith in the movie. And so he said, OK, you can take five hundred thousand dollars off of my pay. Just give me the merchandising rights to the franchise of Star Wars. I don't know how much he still owns of that. Well, he's, he's since like spun off and sold a lot of things. But, I, so, yeah, I don't yeah. know. But but they have made twenty five billion dollars in sales for Star Wars merchandise. Yeah. And it reminded me a lot of uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger talks about how he was the biggest movie star of his time. And at one point, someone's like, what did you make the most money for? It had to be Terminator, right? Terminator 7, you're a core part of this franchise. He goes, no, it's Twins. Because in Twins, someone didn't have faith in the movie. And so he said, well, tell you what, don't pay me. Just give me a percentage of the money we make. And Danny DeVito will do the same thing. And this other person, I forget if it was the director or whatever, will do the same thing. Yeah. And so the movie was a smash hit. Oh, it's because it was his first comedy. And he thought he could do it. And they said, you'll never, you can't carry a comedy movie. He said, yeah, yeah. well, how about this? I'll bet on myself. And the studio head came to him and said, I will never make that deal with anyone again because you just fucked me out of so much money. <laughs> and he said, I didn't fuck you. You didn't want to pay me. Yeah, yeah. And I was willing to bet on myself. And so, yeah, it's just interesting with the consulting firm, with Arnold, with George Lucas. Mm -hmm. I, I see that a lot that actually, if someone's not willing to bet on themselves, mm -hmm. I don't have a lot of faith that they'll do well. They don't have faith. That exactly. Do well. So once once you're at, here's the thing, once you're out of subsistence, because you do need like, look, I can't afford to bet on myself and wait for the upside because I need to pay rent and I need to earn money. But once you have some money in savings, you really need to take projects where you are taking a percentage of upside and demanding it. If you're not, what you're saying is, I actually think I'm going to bring less to this project than I'm going to make for them. So yeah. not only, it's it's almost an immoral act to just get a flat rate for something unless it's like i, I don't know and unless it's non-revenue generative you know what i mean if it's like a contract and you're a contract lawyer be like okay there's no money here but it's going to take me time if if there is money to be generated for them and for you and for the motivated incentives yeah negotiate percentage of of upside then upside upside <laughs> well i was thinking about this so yeah i made it i made this elon musk video one of the things i talked about is first principles and I was trying to figure out how can this apply to people that aren't entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I realized is uh, people often think they don't think of their own job this way, even if you're an employee. Like mm -hmm. all your employer wants is for you to make them more money than they pay you. And so the more money you make your employer, the more they will pay you or the more you can demand mm -hmm. for them to pay you. So even if you're not 
on this technically commissioned thing, if you are absolutely killing it at your job and you go and you go, hey, I want a 50 grand raise. No. Okay, I'm going to quit. If that that should inspire panic in them, mm-hmm. you know what I mean. If it doesn't, then you're not worth the raise. But I think if you actually and there are, so to be clear, there are jobs like my mom is a school nurse where it's like she's not generating money. This is a government job. They have very clear things. So if you're out there going, no, this doesn't work for me, you may be right. Yeah, for sure. You may I'm be thinking right. about within businesses, within mm-hmm. within for profit businesses, which a public school is not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean that's that's just the people. You know, oh, my boss wants me to come in nine to five on this physical location five days a week. That's such an old school model. We're seeing it with remote work. Uh, I, there's these imagined constraints that people have mm-hmm. to their own dreams. Like, oh, I w- I'd love to be able to live abroad, but I can't, I can't go live in Brazil because I have to go to this job. In order to go to this job, I have to go to Brentwood every day. I was just realizing, I don't think you have to go to Brentwood. All you have to do is if you have an 80 grand salary, make it obvious that you make the business 160 extra grand a year. And then go, hey, can I go? Can I do this from Brentwood? Yeah, yeah. Or can I do this from Brazil? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sure, I don't care. <laughs> well, no, then you have to be willing to walk. You have to, you do, there's, because people can say no when there's no teeth behind it. And that's, the, there's a second piece to the negotiation, which is like, I've established my value here and I can match it elsewhere. Yes, but what I'm saying is if you're truly valuable, they won't, they won't want you to walk. No, not 100%. I agree with you. If they're if they're rational actors, but what they might do is they might be worried about precedent. They might uh, take it as a slight. They might be old school. I think this is going away. Is what I'm saying. I actually, I, I, I agree. I it's think a, this is going. I think that was the fear ten years ago, and I think maybe some people will think that. But I actually think if you if you go to a business owner, you go, listen, this is going to set a precedent. They're all going to be awesome, and they're all going to go to Brazil. Yeah, and you're going to make a million dollars a year more. Oh, dude, as a business owner, I take it. I want people to strong arm me. And show me how much they're making me and demand more. Like, this is great for me. <laughs> Take a percentage of upside. Because what that means is that I'm, like, I get a piece of your stock. You're going to create value inside of a business, which I own. You're going to take some of it. I get some of it. Well, and focus on being valuable and, irrepla- and mm-hmm. irreplaceable. That's what I was really, that's the first principles thing of like, what is your job as, a, as someone who works at a company? Be exceptionally valuable to that company. Mm-hmm. So much so that replacing you with the next best person uh, is something that makes your boss sad to think about. <laughs> yeah. If if this is a more limited number of our viewers, I'm sure, but I've been talking to people that are getting into influencing and just really creating content, but they they then get a degree of clout. And one of the the big mistakes they always make is they just say yes and try like how much should I charge for this sponsorship? They say yes to every sponsorship number mm. 1, which is a bad idea because you're diluting the power of your recommendation. Yeah. Uh we did it once. Yeah, you got to learn your lesson the hard way. Yeah, it's okay. Listen, mistakes will be made, and we've we've made our fair share. Uh, but that's that's one mistake is saying yes to everything. And then the other mistake is, you know, how much? What should I say? What should I say? And I say, well, how much do you think you're going to earn them? And if I push people, depending on the product, they go, I don't think I'm going to make any sales. I say, well, then for their sake, you should say no, but not just for their sake, because what you want to become long term is a person like Tim Ferriss, who says, look, when I give a recommendation to my audience. They take it sincerely because I mean it. Mm-hmm. And then they buy it in droves, which means I'm entitled to more money than anyone else than, <laughs> that, you, that you give to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and when you can establish that, yes, it takes longer. You're going to miss that first $400 sponsorship from the company that's going to make no sales off of you. But it's just, a, it's just a much better long-term play. The other thing is that I ask people, you know, would you take an affiliate deal for this? Would you do this this post if you made, depending on whether it's a physical or digital product, 
10 to 50% of the money that you generated. And people often say, no, I want them to pay me. I go, well, you're trying to rip them off. (laughs) You're trying to scam these people by pretending that likes equal sales. And if you build your business pretending that likes equal sales, you will scam a few people. You'll make a couple hundred bucks and you will fail in the long term. Instead, you need to figure out how to what, what, can you recommend, what can you recommend that your audience will actually buy and how and, can you recommend it so that they'll buy it and, what, and then they'll what comment they be like, like oh my god thank you so much yeah, exactly. i found this so and this is where i, I came back to with the cat stuff because because it's one of the things was, was for cats was this litter box that cleans itself and i was like dude this is awesome if i had a cat there's one thing i know that i hated more than anything else it's this and it's it's the perfect affiliate product you see it you're like i need this because my cat shit smells like cat shit. <laughs> I got to get rid of it. Uh, versus like, here's Blue Chew, you know, Viagra pills, that which which I see all over the internet these yeah. days. Well, listen, maybe if I used them and liked them, I would, <laughs> I would sell them. I just have never Blue Chewed. Never Blue Chewed. Do you want to talk about that um, business sponsor that we're not going to take, but that I thought it sounded interesting and you didn't? We can just talk about it. Sure. Which one? Uh, let me pull it up. It is called mainvest.com okay i've yeah. never used it so I don't, I don't have a negative feeling about it it was just i you you'd pointed out that i misunderstood the the rates that they charge i just i did we can do it i don't know if it fits. no no Why, my thing was i didn't i don't want to do it because i'm not going to use it mm-hmm. because it's such a long so when we get a sponsor we like to use it and see if it's good mainvest you invest in small businesses of your choice and then get a revenue share that's a very long process i don't want to do a six month yeah. thing just to get a 200 sponsorship but it did sound cool so I just figured for free, I'd just mention it, but not I've not done it, so I can't strongly endorse it. But it seems cool. It also made me realize we're heading towards the... So we're decentralizing currency. We're democratizing a lot of stuff. I think we're going to start to... I don't know what the word is, if it's de- de- uh, democratize or decentralized, but we're going to make investing something that pe- other regular people can do. Yeah, That's yeah. what this website made me think of. Because So what Mainvest does is they let you give a business money and own a percentage of revenue. Yeah. That is normally an opportunity only available to accredited investors. And accredited investors have to be worth $1 million of of uh, basically net assets that they could liquidate. So like not your house. Yeah. All the best investment opportunities are for the rich. Like you don't get the chance to get into the Uber when it's at a seed round unless you already have a million dollars. So then when Uber goes up a thousand X and Tim Ferriss becomes you know, worth $100 million. That's not something that a $50,000 a year salaried person can do. And I just thought this website was cool because it seems like maybe it will be something that they can do in the future. That maybe these these opportunities to 10x your wealth that the wealthy have had might become available to people who only have 10 grand of savings and they'll invest $500 mm-hmm. into something and it'll become 5000 which for someone with only 10 grand of savings is... Uh, massive yeah. win you know what i mean i think that it yes democratization of finance seems to be happening i do wonder though that for the people that have the money and energy to do excellent diligence that there's still a limited amount of space in the funding of these unicorn startups mm-hmm. that i suspect the connected and wealthy will still have unique access to but you'll be able to invest in your local gym that may expand to 10 locations so I guess there's two, there's like two categories of things. Cause one is, yeah, there's the unicorn startup or the SpaceX or whatever. But I invested in a company called Cosmic Coffee mm-hmm. in Austin, Texas. And that is something I got because I know someone who knows the people that run it. Right. 
But I think it'd be really cool if just people who like the coffee shop who live in Austin, Texas could have gone to them and said, hey, listen, I know you're trying sure. to raise a million dollars. Uh, I didn't give them a million dollars, by the way, but like mm -hmm. in total, you're trying to raise a million dollars, let's say. Can I be a hundred of it? Well, I'll be a hundred of it. Well, I'll be a hundred of it. And then there's just this, you know, Robin Hood-esque app that accrues all of that and goes, yeah, yeah. okay, we have one $100,000 check, which yeah. is enough for you to take. And they go, okay, cool. You guys, this yeah. group of ordinary people owns 10% of. And then we go the cashless and we're accepting cryptocurrencies and you can get percentages of revenue on, on tighter schedules because it's all done algorithmically with per hopefully less opportunity to cook the books, which would be super cool. I, I think that's awesome. But I also do think those 10,000 or 1,000 X opportunities will still remain relatively siloed off from that might be true person. That might be true. Yeah. But I think just in general, the idea like most people, I think the everyman doesn't really own assets. Yeah. You know what I mean? They don't own rental properties. They own NFTs they now. Own, <laughs> yeah, exactly. They own speculative <laughs> NFTs. But uh, no, I mean, that's, yeah, you could you could give a business a thousand dollars and then get fifty dollars back a month or something. Mm -hmm. You could it's just a chance to to start to play the game the way the wealthy are playing. Yeah, and I thought that was cool. No, that's great. I I agree. And and how technology then integrates the uh, the revenue distribution and all that kind of stuff with I, I assume crypto can play a role. Yeah. Is, is an interesting thought. All that said, I haven't used mainvest.com, so I don't know if it's good or not, but uh you know the the idea and the philosophy behind it seems really cool yeah cool should we do fan questions well just one thing on that that i guess i like what you do want in any sort of a system you want people to own things like like the cutthroat capitalist idea of me versus you and i've got to own it all just creates revolution <laughs> it just creates people that have nothing to lose and or, or you know if if you're quote unquote lucky you stupefy them and they don't revolt but you want a nation where people were putting money into an index fund of all of the small businesses. Mm -hmm. And then when they were pissed off about police, they were about to throw the rock and they're like, I own that coffee shop. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. It's like, this is all black owned. This is all white owned. This is all Asian owned. This is like, this is all partially mine. Sure. <laughs> so I'm not, that would be. Such a cool yeah, and I think thing to have. I actually hadn't thought about this till right now, but the and the, there's one idea which is that we'll you know we'll have the government claim everything and then distribute everything in in some sort of weird uh, authoritarian communist no, way. No, no, skip then that. Yeah. What I'm saying yeah. is you could just buy it. Mm -hmm. You can just say, listen, we were gonna go to private equity firms to try to raise this money. Yeah, we'll just go to the community and everyone can just put in a little bit, and then that also still because people always are. The, the counter socialist thing is you we want to reward entrepreneurs we want to reward productivity we want to incentivize innovation but you would still be re rewarding the business creator because he's going to raise funding anyway mm -hmm. and he gets to put some of that in the business and take some of it off the table but you just give it to the community gets a first crack at it before you go across the country to the new york city venture capital firm yeah well the other thing and i'm not i haven't really thought about this this just occurred to me the great thing about government is that it allows for collective action. The bad thing is that it's easily capturable by a handful of people at the top and, and is super corruptible. Mm -hmm. What you, the promise of government is unified action, everybody gets a stake, but you don't want a government. You actually don't necessarily in the future want 
the same kind of a system that we have where you vote for people that go vote and they have to protect their jobs, et cetera. Yeah, we have instant information now. We don't need to send electorates necessarily to go, you know, representatives. And who knows today, but in the future, yeah, what you want is collective ownership mm -hmm. and not of everything you want you want segments which can be bigger and smaller and you do want inequalities in you know i started the business like i'm gonna take this much and you gotta yeah, take on a rest. little bit of the risk when it started it or whatever but, i think uh, the other thing is you need to train you would have to invest in financial literacy for the general populace you'd have to increase public school financial quality of education basically because mm -hmm. this stuff is risky and what you wouldn't want to do is have people put all their savings into it not realizing that most of these new businesses fail. Yeah. Like when you're a VC fund, you take money from people that they know they might lose it all and you hope that your wins just cancel out your losses. Mm -hmm. So I think this is a great idea, but I am realizing people don't understand that it's important to pay off their credit cards. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's, they, they, that's a fair like point. There's people, I know people who they let their credit card balance run because they like to have a certain amount of cash in the bank just in case. Mm -hmm. But they're paying 13% interest on yeah. their credit card and they would be much better off just paying it all off and then if they need cash, go use the credit yeah, card. Yeah, yeah. And so people don't even have that level of financial literacy necessarily. So if they're going to be doing VC investing, it's like, okay, ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th grade public school is going to have something to equip you to understand finances and budgeting and investing and all that stuff, yeah. which we should probably do anyway. Well, the reason that we don't, as far as the argument that I've heard, is that uh, school is based on the industrial model, which is how do we create good compliant employees? Mm -hmm. And we'll teach them some civics and some stuff too, but you don't learn taxes. You don't learn the difference between, uh, what is it? What do hedge funds get? The rate that they pay, the 20%. Capital gains. Capital gains. You don't learn the difference between capital gains and ordinary income. And that's that's conspicuously absent. Dude, I went to school, <laughs> I went to school for and studied finance for four years in a business school. Yeah. And I just learned like two years ago about how uh, like real estate deferred taxes work and mm -hmm. the fact that people the, the way that people can like never pay taxes because they own real estate. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that's what the rich people were doing. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? No one in my life had ever taught me that. Yeah. And that's after going to business school for four years. So, yeah. Well, hopefully in the future. <laughs> well, the, I, the, the last thing I'll say that we can go to questions is that and many other reasons. I will, if I have kids, I think homeschool them. Yeah, you've talked about that before. I'm, I'm, a, I'm pretty committed. By yourself or in a <laughs> Probably in a, in, a, in a community. Go would, try to find um, 10 intelligent yeah. people with roughly the same yep. age kids and yep. go, okay, listen, I'm going to be the guy that teaches them some business stuff. Yeah, yeah. Anyone know any science? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Interesting. Yep. I don't think I'm going to be a business guy. <laughs> what are you going to be? The ayahuasca guy. <laughs> okay, kids. It's MDMA therapy time. Yay. Uh, All right. Let's go to audience questions. All right. First question is an important one. A bunch of people were asking, who are your League of Legends mains and why? Mm. Oh, very exciting stuff. Go ahead. I, I'm all over the place. I go NASA's top. This I is like, really a question for Justin, but I'll let <laughs> Justin's the best of us. Oh, yeah. Justin is the I mean, he's the hyper carry. Yeah. Justin, you want to go first? Well, you're but you you bounce all over the place. Zoe, yeah, I've been, Zoe I've been is your the game since season two. That's 10 years. So Zoe's your main, though. Um, I play a lot of support on my normal account. So I play a lot of uh, Lulu. Yeah, she appealed to me when she first came out because two of her abilities do like different things depending on if you hit um an enemy or an ally so i was like oh that's that's really complicated yeah you like the complicated Just, guys. well the complicated guys you can do more with so yeah. so justin uh, is zoe and he's the guy that we 
when we get in trouble, we go, what do we do? What do we do now? And Justin, Justin calls the shots. It's also a game that gets more simple or complicated depending on who you are. So my guy, it's like, all right, Ben, go press Q on that bad guy. I go, yeah. I got it. Yeah. And then <laughs> every once in a while, if I'm dead, I'll just listen in on Justin's keyboard. And it's like, Justin's the only one who will say, stop talking. I'm concentrating. What are you? Everyone else talks the whole time. Just like, hold on. I'm concentrating. Banging out a complex algorithm. I'm just like, Q. Yeah. W. So who's your guys? I go NASA's top talent or Lux mid and then Lux or Seraphine support Nocturne Jungler. Yeah, I started uh, as Jungler and just clicked Master Yi. And then that's the toughest role for other people to play. And we play with the same people. So I, I got locked into him for a while. Good thing about him is he's super easy. So I learned the macro game very well. So I'm actually from a macro perspective, I'm better than beginners. And then I switched to other, I tried like a Vagar, somebody that has to do more than that. And then on a micro level, I'm not very good. But those are the two that I've played so far. Nasus suits me well because the character is someone that sucks in the early game. But if you're patient, you become the strongest person at the end. So it, re it really models my 20s very well, which is just, yeah. okay, just don't die. You're not going to do anything good early. But if you're patient, and you just be smart and don't get greedy. Then by the end, you'll be the strongest person. All like, our games this are This is what I wanted minutes. in yeah. my 20s. Yeah. We're, we we play forty five minute games almost every time because we just we can't put it away. And We're bad. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there you go. It's the League of Legends. All right. Next is uh, last night. I went to some. I went up to some college parties. The first one was just a small group of people that I would spend the rest of the night with. I used the knowledge that you guys have from amazing first impressions, and I made sure to talk to and greet everyone out there. However, when attempting to be high energy because I was truly excited to be there, everyone didn't like it. Whenever I would try to speak to anyone, nobody seemed interested and wouldn't give me any eye contact or listen, aside from the two gentlemen there. But when we went to house parties uh, and I brought that same energy with dancing big, talking louder, and having fun, I got tons of positive feedback mm. from strangers cheering me on and introducing themselves to me. What was the first environment? It was like a small group of people. Ah, got so it. More like a kickback or whatever. Um, I don't drink because I want to master my charisma. Uh, if you guys have any advice on what you would do in a more intimate setting, I would appreciate it. Yeah, great question. Awesome question. So yeah, these are the growing pains of learning charisma. First of all, trust me, you're you're doing it right. It doesn't go perfect every yeah. time. Um, the goal is to have slightly more energy than the environment would get from the average I was going to refer to it as one level higher. Yeah, 20% higher is what yeah. my... It's not real yeah. math, but yeah. you go. I go 20% higher energy than the environment dictates. I like one level for this reason, and I'll explain it to you. So if you consider a level as like, you've got, here's this, uh, we're all sitting on a couch watching television. And the next thing is, we're all hanging out, talking to each other, laughing in that same environment. And the next one is, we're at a house party and there's drinks and there's slip cup. And the next thing is, we're out at a bar and then it's, we're out at a club and it's New Year's Eve, whatever. Yeah. If you if you think of that as the rough order of things, if, if everybody's sitting quietly, be the fun and talkative guy if you're at a house party be the person who's out at a bar having a really good time if you're at a bar be the person who's at a club and if you're at a club it's not 20 percent. it's like it's, yeah, yeah it's 150 percent more okay. at a club I like level like and so that that's the only reason because it might be 20 percent at lower levels but at the higher levels it's like double sure yeah it's double uh, but that is to say i you i would never advocate that people act like it's new year's eve and they're at the Las Vegas nightclub yeah. in every social situation. You don't just kick down the door of <laughs> when there's six people gathered around like smoking <laughs> weed and talking about philosophy. You don't just kick the door and I'm like, what's up, everybody? Woo! So yeah, it's uh it's the idea is that you're you are the highest energy, smiliest, most gregarious person 
in that environment, but not that you're maxed out. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's that's the big thing. So if they're all there speaking very literally, a level above that is to bring joking and playfulness in, into the interaction a bit more, a bit more volume, a bit more expressiveness. The other thing is uh, you don't have to do all the talking. Is the mm-hmm. other thing. I, I could imagine someone who's trying to work on their charisma. They're with eight close friends and they're just trying to dominate the conversation. Mm-hmm. There is there is a place within being charismatic for listening with good eye contact, smiling when someone else is talking. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not just about having the spotlight all the time. Yep. Cool. Next is I'm currently building a platform slash business around my passion, killer whales. <laughs> for context, I plan on growing my current audience through content creation and incorporating products as the business grows. Mm-hmm. Ben mentions that most of the people he knows who've turned passion projects into jobs end up losing the love of the game. Mm-hmm. As somebody starting a business journey based on a passion, do you have any advice for keeping the love of the game as I build this passion into a profession? It's inevitable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Six, this is there's there's a tension between business and art. Art is expression without regard for how it's received. And business is it's all about how people receive things because I'm here to serve you and in ex- and in exchange get some value back myself. So there's going to be an inevitable tension where you're going, oh, you say because the world that I know is YouTube, like, you know, how fast can a killer whale swim and how long can a killer whale jump are like the videos everybody wants, but I'm tired of doing that. But the audience wants more killer whale stat videos. And so you're doing killer whales, but you're leaning in a direction that you're not totally in love with. And then what I would just say is, uh, one, I think ROI spreadsheet will be helpful so that when you do things that are business minded, you're getting the highest return on it. So, if you're, for instance, you're deciding between creating a new website and releasing videos that you don't want to, and you're like, ugh, these, I don't really want to do either of these. I'm going to create this website. What you might have found is if you did the ROI spreadsheet that the video has far greater return in money. So what you can do and what Ben and I often do is we'll be like, look, we're going to do these handful of very high monetary return things. And then things are good. Do a video you want. Do Henry Gracie. Do yep. do something else. We're doing okay. So it's kind of like one for me, one for them. But oftentimes, a lot of that is even beyond the business. It's mm-hmm. okay. We're gonna do this thing for the business, and then I'm gonna go surfing. Yeah, three days this week. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't say this to discourage anyone. I, I want to be clear. Starting Chris on Command is one of the greatest things that has ever happened in my life. Uh, I'm just aware that this is part of the process of being focused on the money because then you go okay well i could make this video about how fast a whale is but what i actually want to do is make a video about how much a whale eats in a day Mm -hmm. but after two years of making weekly videos what you'll go is i still love whales but what i want to do is go to an aquarium Mm -hmm. i don't want to make a video about anything Mm -hmm. and so then you take the week off and then you come back the next week and go i still don't want to make a video Mm -hmm. about anything and at some point, you'll want to make a video again out of passion, but you'll make a video before that point because if a month goes by without you making a video, the channel will start to suffer. Yeah. And when it's your primary form of income, that will not be something that you want. And honestly, even if you don't care about the money, just the fact that views are going down and this and that, you'll, you'll just get tied to doing things that you wouldn't choose to do if you had a billion dollars. And... Uh, 
that's okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I really don't, this isn't meant to discourage at all. It was, it's just something to be aware of is that this isn't going to be 100% fun all the time. When you quit a, a job to start a business, even if it's a business in an area you're passionate about, even if it's doing something that you love, as you do it repetitively and as you start to think about it in terms of earning money, over time, it will just lose a bit of that love of the game joy and still be better than the job you left. Mm -hmm. And then you find other things. So like surfing is my thing that I don't ever plan to start a YouTube channel about. And it's pure joy. And I go only when I want to. And I never go surfing out of obligation. And I'm going to try to make a charisma video every other week, which is less than we used to do when we did them every week or twice a week at one point. But more than I would do if, I don't know, money, all of a sudden money was like removed from the world. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Yes. And the good news is that this is a problem that becomes more intense as a significant amount of time passes. So like two years is, you know, where burnout is felt. Yeah, yeah. We're like eight years in, yeah. just so you guys know. Chris Wong Command was started eight years ago. The early phases are often very thrilling and exciting and challenging and you're cracking a code and you have a lot to say and do and things that you want to make. So this isn't a problem that you need to be concerned with early on, just back of your mind aware of when it starts to crop up that is what i would say and yeah. i'm more i'm more just say it as a fact of life like it's like yeah there's gravity and also people who start businesses that they're passionate about tend to lose their love of the game but it's mm -hmm. still could be way more rewarding than a job still could be amazing for the first couple of years mm -hmm. it's just a thing just a thing that happens yep yep well and and so i'll, I'll elaborate one more thing it's not that you're going to stop loving killer whales necessarily like I, I was listening to the critical role guys who play dungeons and dragons they don't want to stop playing dungeons and dragons mm -hmm. what they want to stop doing is having to play every thursday in front of an audience and make sure that everything is interesting to the audience and uh in line with the canon of the previous 130 episodes that they've established. What they want to do is go back to their basement. Yeah, they just want to go off camera. And chill. And do whatever they so want. So you might like just, you know, probably love killer whales, but yeah. you just might not want to talk about them or sell about them or whatever it is, which is, which is cool. And they'll probably still be better than a job. Mm -hmm. Next is I'm in a long-term relationship of five plus years and recently had a first slip up. Uh, we had a little sleepover slash party at a friend's house, and I ended up drunkenly making out with one of my long-term female friends. Since everyone was asleep at that time, no one knows except us. Uh, I feel like telling my girlfriend would make things very complicated and could end in a breakup, especially given the fact that I see this girl all the time, and she also has become quite good friends with my girlfriend over the years. Mm. On the other hand, we feel guilty of what happened, and keeping the secret seems like a very unfair thing to do. Any advice? So... My advice is going to be from the framework of uh, long-term focus and not preservation of the relationship. It's, it's preservation of the relationship that I think you want to have. If, you're, if your goal was, I want to remain dating this girl, it would not be and, and you were just and I'm willing throwing to, away morality for and a second I'm, and just yeah. going, yeah, I'm just going to try to solve for that. It would be, solution. oh, yeah, don't tell her, because you know, but here's what I can say. If you don't tell her, and it sounds like you're already feeling, you're going to feel guilty. It's going to insidiously infect other things. Even when you forget about it, it'll be in the back of your head as the thing that you didn't say. You'll feel like you could be exposed. You're going to have just a bit of awkwardness. And would you want her to do that with you, you know, to treat you as if you couldn't make a decision? Because quite frankly, it's. She deserves to choose if she wants to be with someone who slips up once every five years and confesses. Uh, 
And I think you would want the same, probably. Like, give me the option of of making this. Don't be paternalistic and, and know what's in my best interest. So my advice would be to tell her to say that, um, you're sorry, you know, you're drunk, didn't want it to happen, it won't happen again. Um, and yeah, and that you love her and, and want to stay with her, it sounds like. And, uh, but could not, what I would make clear is, is especially as you're saying this, like it's, it, it's not an option for me not to tell you because at the, at the very least, let's say she dumps you, she will trust you, <laughs> you know, which is, uh, to me valuable in and of itself. Just knowing that like of all the guys that she'll ever date, the one that she'll know that she could trust was, was you. Um, and I think that's in and of itself, something special. What do you think? I agree. I mean, I just go golden rule, mm-hmm. which is like, yeah, it's going to suck to tell her, but yeah. I'd want to be told. So if I, I have to behave the way that I want to be, I have to treat other people the way I want to be treated. Mm-hmm. Right. That's seems like pretty for me. That's, that's like pretty foundational. So mm-hmm. that's my whole math is I'm dating a girl for five years. She kissed another guy. Do I want her to hide it either? Cause she's afraid I'll dump her or for some, my behalf. Yeah. No, I want her to tell me and then I'll, know the truth and then I can make my own decision about if I want to forgive her and move past it or if I want to end a five-year relationship because of it but if that's what I would want then that's what I would do or I would try to do Mm -hmm. yeah and I suspect I could be wrong uh don't want to promise probably won't end in a breakup I could be wrong but depends how old you are Five years confessing to kissing someone, at least in the areas of America that I've grown up in, I've never seen anything of that nature. Sometimes there's a, te- a temporary breakup. Yeah. I can think of a guy, he's engaged now, I think, but he slept with someone. Okay, that's in Vegas. <laughs> I, I knew, yeah, that's different. And uh, <laughs> they broke up for like two months and they got back together and now they're engaged. That was like the obligatory, yeah, that's just the obligatory. Don't do this again. <laughs> like, yeah. Okay. Anything else? I was just thinking if he's done it again, I don't know the answer. <laughs> no one knows. No, he probably knows. I don't know. Yeah. All right, cool. Uh, we had one more and it was actually just the total opposite perspective. Somebody wrote in and it probably wasn't this guy's girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> so it, I think it was another guy, but he said that his girlfriend had um, kissed like a, a mutual guy friend of theirs. Mm. Which he was wondering... Um, if he should trust her and get back together or did she going did she tell him yep so she told him and then the context was that she said that uh, she only wanted him she was really sorry wouldn't happen again and he is not sure how to process that i think sorry go ahead no i was just gonna say no one i mean no one knows if it's i'm sure she's sorry i don't no one knows if it'll happen again that's Mm -hmm. a that's a I don't know. That was my initial thought. It's yeah, like yeah. that those words mean nothing in the heat of the moment because she's so upset that she's lost you. I'm mm-hmm. not that doesn't mean don't take her back or don't break up with her. But I'm just thinking through without context. I couldn't possibly make a guess on if this person would or wouldn't do this again just because yeah. they say they wouldn't. Well, here's what I can I guess can say. Um, generally, and not always, people obviously change. That's two things are simultaneously truth. People can change and they often don't. Mm-hmm. Right. So things that you can expect uh she may do this again which isn't to say that she will but it's 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 possible with it's possible that it could happen um 
It's also possible that if it happened, she would tell you. Uh, and, and it also might never happen again. I and it know. also might never happen again. Uh, so I, the question is, are you willing to expose yourself to the possibility that it happens again and she tells you? And it also, there's, there's a chance that she might not tell you. And then that's your uh, decision to make, I guess, at that, at that level. Yeah, I don't have strong prescriptive rules for what people should do in their relationships. The only the thing part. I would say, the only thing if you had said, no, I, I discovered, I'd be like, oh, well, you have no basis on which to trust this person at this point. Like if you discover two months later that it's happened, it's like, oh, great. So I found one. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. How, like how many did I miss? How many might I miss? At that point, uh, trust is broken. But I think that well, how does any, I mean, this is a question. I, how does anybody know that they're not getting cheated on? Well, trust, this is the thing. So you have trust for an individual, but what you really at the end of the day have is trust that you'll survive betrayal. That That's the deepest trust is like, look, if you're going to get married to someone, they're going to promise never to do something. Anytime anyone promises anything, it's like, you can't know that. Yeah. <laughs> you might intend this. You might mean this, but you've never had Cristiano Ronaldo sweep you off your feet as you were walking down the street. Like you don't know what what you would do in that sort of a situation. Well, yeah. Even beyond that, I mean, people. I, so I guess having seen, you know, I'm 33. I have friends ranging from like 25 to 40, uh, and you just see a lot of crazy stories. You see people who. Mm -hmm they were dating someone and then it turns out that that person was married and they had no idea. Mm -hmm. It's like people, most people are honest, but then there are some people who are just lying all the time yeah. and you'll eventually catch them. But someone could present themselves to you one way and then not be that way. And you wouldn't know for mm -hmm. years. And so, yeah, this is something I actually don't know. It's like, how does anybody like really know what's happening when someone's out of eyesight? Well, I think what you have is history of difficult honesty that that's truly what you can rely on is track record uh, i mean and some people are, i guess are just perfect not and they just never, with you though no like, no no like, you, like this person this is another if you're thing. dating someone and they've never told a hard truth to a friend yeah and you know that there's conflict with a friend you're like why don't you talk to them about it they go oh no i don't want to yeah i don't want to lose the friendship it's like okay it's, this is who you are you're the kind of person who's going to avoid that's a red flag avoid hard yeah. conversations yellow to red flag to to maintain a relationship, which means with me, you'll avoid hard conversations to maintain a relationship. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, that's that's something you that you could use. I don't know. I've also just seen so I've seen I mean, we lived in Las Vegas, so I'm a little bit jaded, but I've just seen so much cheating from both genders. That's like, yeah, to to me, what matters is the trust and the trust to me is not that you can control your behavior forever, which obviously you would like you never sleep with someone, never do this, never that like you that's that's yes that's what we want but uh dude i've seen honorable people fuck up mm -hmm. like people that people that i trust people that and and the question is yeah can you can you trust them going forward and what that is based on i think is a track record of having come clean about difficult things and seeing that reflected in other relationships that they have um, and then the other thing that I would say is because you're likely to be a very biased source, go to a friend that you trust for things and be like, look, here's the scenario. I'm not looking for like dumper, don't dumper advice. I'm looking for like, in terms of trustworthiness, here's the guy that we know that we both don't <laughs> trust. And here's the person that we, where does this, my girlfriend rank? Yeah. 
Um, and I think that's a very useful piece of feedback because you need to be past the 50 yard line <laughs> on that one. You need to be like, yeah, most guys I know, though, their friends don't really know their girlfriend. Well, yeah, that might be the case that might. But I think that what it allows for is and let them describe red flags. If they're like, look, I don't I don't know. But like saw this, saw this, saw this. What do you think? Depends how old you are. I mean, I know guys who dated girls for five years while we were all basically living together in college and never had a conversation with her. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, so that was just the dynamic of our friend group. Mm -hmm. So I would have literally been unable to answer this question if someone well, let them say that. came to me. Yeah. Let them say that. Let them say, I, I have no fucking idea. 50 yard line. You know, like I, I have no basis. And I just abstain from, yeah, just abstain from yeah, voting. Somewhere, I would guess in the middle would be that, that that's a fair thing for them to say, you know. But anything else? That's all I had. Cool. Patreon questions? Yep. All right, everybody. Thank you. If you want to catch another hour or so, we'll see how many questions we have today. Uh, too many for today. Too many for today. Well, it'll probably be another hour. If you want to catch another hour of us chatting, it's on Patreon, open to any level. You guys keep the podcast running, uh, and we appreciate we appreciate everyone who's over there. So hopefully we catch you either way. Until next time. Peace. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.